Hello, fellow rebel capitalists. Hope you're well. I'm here with Doomberg and Michael Saylor. I'm totally stoked to get into this conversation. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, same here. I'm looking forward to it, George, and I'm glad that we can make this come together. You know, the marvels of Twitter uh, from a few comments to each other last week to here we are talking, uh, you know, uh, all together live. It's really amazing. And thanks for putting this together. Absolutely. So kind of the format here, guys, is I'm going to talk to Michael about Sailor, or excuse me, Michael Saylor about Bitcoin. We're going to go back and forth a little bit, pull up some charts, and then I'll kind of hand it over to Doomberg. And he's going to talk to Michael more about uh, micro strategy. So um, before we get going here, Doomberg, do you want to go ahead and give them that disclaimer that you were talking about? Yeah, just for everybody's uh, awareness, neither George nor I or anybody affiliated with us has any position in MicroStrategy, either their stocks or their bond or calls or uh, puts or anything like that. We have no financial interest in the in the discussion today. And, and for all three of us, you know, nothing we say on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Um, none of us are financial advisors. And so um, this is a, a thoughtful discussion and a polite um, back and forth between three people on a, on a fascinating topic. So just to clear... Uh, anybody's minds around um, anybody here talking their book. Um, certainly George and I aren't. And I know um, Michael's been pretty consistent on his positions as well. Yeah. And so my position, I just want to state this before we get going. It, it's not definitely not anti-Bitcoin. I own Bitcoin. I, I think it's uh, very, very interesting for a lot of different reasons. My issue is that the fundamental analysis or the fundamental assumptions made by a lot of people in the Bitcoin community, as well as the gold community, as well as the Austrians, is is wrong and then i also have a, a problem with people who frame the um bitcoin or gold for that matter as something where we could be certain of an outcome and that it's a solution where i like to look at things in terms of probabilities and trade-offs i don't think we live in a world of certainties and definitely don't live in a world of solutions so that's my main kind of pushback uh that i'm going to start with so uh, Mike, let's get over to this chart that you gave me here. And this is, I think, going to be one of your main talking points here. So can you kind of go ahead and walk us through this chart and how this pertains in your view to Bitcoin? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think that the passion for Bitcoin starts from the premise that the money in the world is broken, that the fiat system is a distortion of reality, which is cruel and brutal to the working class, the middle class, and, and anyone who is not politically wired to take advantage of the system. So I, I would also make the observation that, you know, most of the statistics from the government, you know, that, that purport to measure the GDP or the inflation rate or the unemployment rate, they're warped. And so a lot of economics today is all is all revolving around getting you to accept a warped metric and then continuing to warp it such you come to the wrong conclusion. Right. And this is this graph is a classic example. This is the official, you know, Federal Reserve published uh, graph showing the debasement of the dollar over 100 years. And if you took it at face value, what it says is that 26 bucks is worth a dollar today and you lost 96 percent of your purchasing power. And that is, and if you look at the fine print, it says, oh, versus CPI. Yeah. Okay. But this is a working class, uh, this is a working class uh, um, model of inflation. So 
if you're measuring a market basket of highly manufactured products like boxes of potato chips or, you know, Netflix streaming videos, things, things that, you know, come out of factories, then you're not going to see the same inflation. The implication of that graph is that inflation was 3% for 100 years. Mm -hmm. By the way, the official target is 2%. The implication of the graph is 3%. But I'll give you another number, which is in 1933, gold was $20 an ounce. And in the year 2020, gold was $2,000 an ounce. And you don't got to be a rocket scientist to figure out that's a 100x increase, which meant that the money supply or or the the U.S. dollar lost 99% of its value against a precious metal, the king precious metal. But that's not the right number either, because I'm sitting in a house right now. And the deed for the house, the transfer of the house was $100,000 in 1930. And, and the house had somewhere in the range of ten dollars to $20,000 worth of land under it. So the, the price of, of uh, land in Miami Beach, let's, let's just be generous and say it was $20,000 an acre in 1930. It's easily $10 million an acre today. Right. That's 500x. Okay, that means you lost 99.8% of the value of the dollar in 100 years, in 92 years. Right. And that implies 7% inflation a year. So gold bugs see 5%. If you want to own a nice beach house in Palm Beach, it's 7%. If you just want to live in your parents' basement and eat boxed cereal, right? And you want to live with the CPI things, if you want nothing nice, then 3% but the government touched 2%. So what's this got to do with Bitcoin? Well, there's another chart or another, another one I gave you, which is even more blood curdling, which is, I remember the Argentine peso being one peso to the dollar 22 years ago. Right now, the blue dollar rate is about 320 pesos to the dollar. You work through the math and what you find out is that the inflation rate or, or the, um, yeah, the inflation rate of the peso versus the dollar is about 21 to 24% per year, mm-hmm. 20 years running. Okay. Which means that whereas um, in the U.S. we've been cutting the value of your money in half every decade. In Argentina, they're cutting the value of the money in half or the currency in half every three to four years. Right. Now you want the blood curdling statistic, right? Which is, that's a 24% loss per year against the dollar. And the dollar is 7% against scarce assets. So that means you're losing 31% of your purchasing power a year. If you buy into uh, fiat currencies, if you're, tr- if you're unlucky enough to be one of 4 billion people in a weak currency environment like Venezuela or Argentina, you're pretty much getting destroyed every 36 months. And if you're lucky enough to be in the US, you're just getting destroyed every 10 years. And so that leaves us with the question of, well, what's the solution? Okay, and and George, uh, to be clear, I agree that um, this is a probabilistic assessment when you live in the US and you have to choose between gold, S&P indexes, real estate in Florida, and other derivatives and other contracts and Apple stock. It's, it's a probabilistic thing and you gotta have a portfolio of you. But the interest rate in Argentina right now is 49% overnight. 
and the official inflation rate is probably 60 and the unofficial inflation rate is 80. Mm. And so you have a different view toward probabilistic risk when the ship is sinking and you're about to lose everything in 36 months. So, so I would say with regard to Bitcoin, Bitcoin is an interesting, nice to have and an intellectual discussion for people in Western Europe and the US and the developed world with a strong currency losing 7% of its value a year. But Bitcoin represents a life raft to the billions of people in Sri Lanka and Lebanon and Turkey and Argentina and Venezuela, not to mention the ones in Cuba and North Korea that have zero property rights. And of course, half of the world or more has capital controls, right? If you look at that blue dollar rate, what you'll find is that the official rate is 130 or 140 and the, right and the right actual here. rate, yeah, there we go. The official rate is 170, the unofficial rate is 317. It means the government and the bank steal half of your money every time you change it, yeah. okay? And that's, and, and so this is offensive to the Bitcoiners and our view is, it's offensive that they steal half of your money every 36 months. And it's offensive they steal half your money every time you change it. And it's also offensive that MasterCard and Visa take two and a half percent of your money every time you move a transaction from left to right, which means that if you do 40 transactions a year, you've lost all your money. So the credit system and the banking system is onerous and expensive and inefficient. And the monetary system and the fiat currencies are confiscatory and they're, un and they're brutally unfair. And if you want to have money, you can't depend upon the currencies. So if you're lucky and you're wealthy, maybe you can buy buildings and start Standard Oil and you can invest in big tech. But what about the taxi cab driver in Nigeria? <laughs> what, what about the four billion people that are, you know, that are, that are, unbanked and what about the other three billion that don't have to be and don't happen to be in the top billion elite what what about them right so i agree with everything you said uh the the my difference i think is why we are seeing this type of consumer price inflation so i want to focus just on the united states for a moment because that's where I have data. So, Michael, when you're talking about fiat currency, are you are you talking about fiat currency? Or are you talking about uh, currency like M2 increases, where the money supply is backed by gold, or maybe in the future backed by Bitcoin? Because when I, when I, know I a lot of people fiat, conflate those two things. If I refer to fiat currency, I mean the king of fiat currencies is the U.S. dollar. It's the world reserve currency. And then the other, the the strong currencies that are linked to it are like the euro. Etc. and um, and the yen, and then you have the weaker fiat currencies: the Argentine peso, the Venezuelan bolivar, the Lebanese pound, the Turkish lira. Right? There's but, about 180 currencies total. Any currency right. backed by a nation state, and of course, the nation state has the ability to decide exactly what the supply is and what the interest rates will be, and they can they do and they will manipulate it to their own benefit. Right. But let's say that we are on a Bitcoin standard. Uh, where you went down to a bank and they used fractional reserve banking. I know that technically, if they create an IOU above and beyond what they have in the bank, that's not necessarily fiat because it's backed by something. But a lot yeah, of people so, in the space conflate those two. So would you consider that uh, a problem as well? 
so I can imagine getting some real colorful knockdown drag out debates with the cyber hornets over the Bitcoin standard on Twitter. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and George and Doomberg, just to be clear, I too am afraid of the cyber hornets. They will shred anybody if you get on their wrong side. So uh, you have to respect the hornets. But um, my view on, on this entire issue is Bitcoin is about 0.1% of the liquid financial assets circulating around the world right now, like 300 to $400 billion out of a $400 trillion number. If it got 10 times bigger, it would be 1%. If it got 100 times bigger, it would be 10%. So in our lifetime, in the next 10 to 30 years, I don't think the entire world is going to be revolving around Bitcoin. I, I think that what you'll see is Bitcoin is a reserve asset that can replace gold and can replace land and can replace portfolios of, of uh, stocks as a long-term treasury asset. I think that everybody in the world, as long as there are nation states, you have to respect the Argentine government and you have to pay your taxes in the peso, even though you don't like it. And then you got to respect the U.S. government. The USD is going to be the world reserve currency. In China, the CNY is going to be strong. So as in Europe, as long as the European Union lasts, the euro is going to be a player. So the right way, I think, for us to think about it is what portion of your monetary assets are sitting in dollars? What portion is sitting in pesos or bolivar? And what portion is sitting in a liquid treasury at reserve asset like Bitcoin? And then what portion of your wealth would you have invested in buildings and stocks and collectibles and derivatives and bonds? And they, the answer to that is different for everybody, depending upon how much money they have and where they reside in their citizenship. And also whether you're a corporate entity or you're a family or an individual is different. I think that um, you get yourself in trouble if you start imagining just a world where Bitcoin is the only asset, you know, and debt goes away and currencies go away. Now you, you just get into some very interesting, interesting hyper, you know, uh, hypothetical situations. But I, I don't really care to to promote them or debate them because I just don't think it's constructive for the next 30 years. As long one more point, yeah. as long as there are nation states, there will be currencies. When the U.S. is no longer relevant, there will be no U.S. dollar. As long as there are corporations like Apple and Google, there will be securities. And so I don't, I don't promote securities and currencies because my view is the, the safest ethical ground to stand on is to promote uh, a commodity without an issuer, right? I don't promote them. But I understand there's 10,000 securities you might invest in and you can make mistakes or you can make a lot of money on them. And I don't dismiss the value of Google stock. And I understand that you really need the Russian ruble if you live in Russia and you really need the Bolivar if you live in Venezuela, even though the Bolivar loses 98% of its value in two years. I, you still need it, right? So I think that you got to look at a world of multiple assets and then you got to have a portfolio theory as to how you how you balance the assets. And if I was giving advice to an Argentine, I would say hold a month to two months worth of pesos and then hold a year to two years worth of dollars and hold a few decades worth of uh, Bitcoin if you had to hold only liquid assets. Mm -hmm. I would not recommend you have a million dollars of Argentine real estate. 
but I would recommend you have a million dollars worth of Miami beach real estate. And if you go up and down the beach here in Miami, you'll find that most of the condos and most of the real estate is owned by South Americans. And I used to wonder why. And now I know exactly why. It's because you take a million dollars in Argentina in the year 2000 and you put it into a million dollars of real estate in Miami Beach, you've got $10 million worth of real estate today, which is worth 4 billion Argentine pesos. Right. Right. And if you kept it in Argentina, you've got a million pesos. So 4 billion versus a million, it's a pretty big deal. It's a factor of a thousand difference. And so I, you know, I, I, that's how I view it. I'm not really hung up on hyper Bitcoinization and the end of debt and, you know, governments as we know it, I I'm going to stick with the governments for now. Okay. So let me go ahead and ask a couple questions and I'll get into some of my points and then uh, it might not even be a debate, but I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on it. So first and foremost, it, let's just assume we do go into a, a United States where Bitcoin is money and things are denominated in bitcoin and you're paying your taxes in bitcoin Did, have you thought through what the revenue to the government might be like I, as you know it, it you know usually it's about 18 percent of gdp george I don't, back to the, I don't think 40. that bitcoin is a currency I, as long as the united states exists stuff's going to be denominated in the u.s dollar okay i i see it as property i i, I my view is bitcoin is demonetizing gold the reason that gold, ha, you know, gold is only a hundred x as valuable over over ninety years, and property is five hundred x more valuable, is because um, property is actually being monetized. Gold is being demonetized. So Bitcoin is going to demonetize that second investment home. It's going to demonetize gold. It's going to demonetize maybe ETFs and some stocks, but um, and ultimately maybe it's going to demonetize some bonds. But it's going to be a long process. It's going to take a couple of decades, so, three decades. Okay, but, and then, but, yeah, but let's go forward there. If, if Bitcoin doesn't take over from the dollar, how does Bitcoin fix this chart that we're looking at right here? Yeah, Bitcoin's not going to save you, save the dollar from continuing losing value. Bitcoin is just going to allow you to not get poor. No, I understand that. Right? Like, but, but if but, you want to get rich, you have to own property. And so Bitcoin is property that the middle class and working class people can own everywhere in the world. And otherwise, they're going to be destitute. So Bitcoin is a solution to the individual and the corporation. Bitcoin is not going to eliminate the euro, the yen, the yuan, and the dollar. The do they will all continue. And I think that I, I think that it's idealistic to think that somehow all of the world's problems get solved in the next decade with Bitcoin. That's not true. But what is true is that if you're about to become poor and starve to death in the middle of a country where the currency is collapsing, it'll solve your problem. It solves the problem of people in Lebanon or Turkey or Argentina or Venezuela. It solves their problem. And if you're a middle class person driving an Uber in the United States, you can't very well buy an 18th of a building. So it gives you property rights. You can buy a piece of property and you can save for your retirement using that property and not rely upon a third party, right? So, so it, is a, it is a particular solution to, uh, to a set of problems that individuals face. That's right. why we promote it. Right, it's but as an example, I was, I was listening to a podcast that you did with our, our good buddy, Robert Breedlove. Right. And, uh, you got, and by the way, that series you guys did was absolutely phenomenal. 
But you guys were talking about uh, Bitcoin solving the problem of consumer price inflation, because in a world that is where, where you're using Bitcoin as the, the money, let's say, uh, since it's got a fixed supply that the government can't manipulate, this is going to create consumer price deflation naturally, because all of the, the, the lowering of prices due to the uh, entrepreneurial spirit, you know, the entrepreneurs going out there and creating better, more efficient uh, goods and services at lower prices. That's the natural uh, result of free market capitalism. And it's just the increase of the currency units that acts as a counterbalance to that, that steals that purchasing power away from the poor and middle class. So you guys were thinking through, okay, well, Bitcoin fixes this because it's a fixed money supply, therefore creates the deflation. And then all of those benefits accrue to basically the poor and middle class. Yeah, so I think that's that's uh, that's well said. And the way we would say it would be under a fiat standard, you're you're building the economy on a crumbling, corrupt uh, credit system where the value is draining from society's uh, it's draining into society's goods, making them more expensive right. because the currency is demonetizing. And right. under a Bitcoin standard, you're building on a sound, virtuous money. And the value is draining into society's money, making the goods less expensive. And, and that's true. It's just it's going to take 30 years. I mean, it's a lot. Again, coming back to this, if Bitcoin became, uh, you know, went from 400 billion to 4 trillion to 40 trillion, when it gets to 40 trillion, 100x from where it is right now, it's, it's starting to put material pressure on a bond market, which at that point will be 200 trillion dollars, right? So you're still only chewing into 10, 20, 30% of the bond market. Now, how fast we get there, it's probably 20, 30 years. So in the year 2050, I, I think that the idea is we're going to, we're not going to have a jolting revolt or a revolution in the economic system. That's not good for anybody, right? I mean, that, that happened in the Soviet Union and in Cuba and we know, and North Korea know how that ends. That's not good. What you want is a gentle progression or a progression from a fiat system that's that's on cr that's crumbling on corrupt credit. You want to progress from that system to sound money. And Bitcoin represents integrity, sound money. And if it took 30 to 50 years to get there, that's probably the most peaceful, least violent, uh, most constructive way to get there. You know, I can't see us rebuilding the entire economy in a matter of a couple of years. And so no, no, I no, wouldn't I'm not talking recommend about it. I'm talking about when we get there, you know, if you have sound money, then the argument is you're, you're naturally going to get yeah. inflation and that deflation is going to solve a lot of problems that we have in society. And that's why on Twitter, as an example, and you might not be saying this, but a lot of the, we'll call them uh, people that are thought leaders in the Bitcoin space, that's why they're always saying Bitcoin fixes this, yeah. Bitcoin fixes this. And it, it really leads back to uh, deflation. We're idealists and we look out 30 years to 60 years and we see a, a beautiful world. Now, how? what does that mean? Look, the, you know, when the government encounters a war, and it just prints money. Well, now we declare a war on everything, right? We've got a war on carbon. We've got a war on nuclear power. We've got a war on COVID. We've got a war on, you know, we got vaccines, a war on the unvaccinated. We've got a war on Chinese imports. We've got a war in Ukraine. We've got a war on the Russians, you know, even though we're not at war with the Russians. There's one thing after the other, right? And, 
we got a war on people. People can't go to school for two years. We shut down the schools. We shut down the offices. You know, the offices are 10% occupied. So you could make a list of about a dozen wars that we, a culture war, right? You can't say certain things. Every one of those wars costs money. Now, if the government had to pay for them, right, then they couldn't afford to fight the wars. In fact, World War I couldn't have been fought without fiat money. World War II couldn't have been fought without money. Vietnam couldn't be fought without printing money. That's why we went off the gold standard. So, so um, why can the government actually print the money? It's because such a large portion of the economic wealth of the civilization is in the fiat currency. So how do you actually put some constraint or some governing guardrails on the government? You shrink the size of the fiat currency. If instead, you know, if you looked at the economy now, there's probably $80 trillion of currency and $100 trillion of bonds, $200 trillion worth of currency derivatives floating around. And the amount of U.S. dollar currency derivatives has gone through the roof. So in a world where, where there's 200 or 300, and by the way, the, the stocks and the rest, they're all currency derivatives. So in a world where there's $250 trillion of USD currency derivatives, the U.S. Federal Reserve can print an extra $2 trillion, and that's like 1% of the currency base. So they can do, they can do quite a lot of money printing uh, with impunity. If, if that... We know intuitively, right? What would happen if every foreign nation sold their U.S. sovereign debt? If the Chinese sold all their debt, the Japanese sold all their U.S. treasury bonds. If no one outside the U.S. held the dollar, then uh, when we printed a lot of money, we would see double the inflation rate. See Argentina. And, and we, we, 1980, we saw it, George. In 1980, uh, I think the dollar was maybe 40% of currency transactions. And we know the Soviet empire had its own currency and there's a German mark and there was the Turkish lira. You had lots of other currency systems and not everything uh, was uh, trading against the dollar. I mean, the, the, the Indian economy was closed. The Chinese economy was closed. In that environment, we managed to create 18, 19% inflation in the US. We had to take interest rates to 19%. Why is it? Because instead of instead of printing an extra five trillion dollars and spreading it across a hundred trillion dollars of other people's money, uh, we printed the money and we spread it just among American citizens. So I think if you read like the the creature from Jekyll Island, one uh, the point that uh, the author makes is, oh, the Federal Reserve printed all this money and the taxpayers inadvertently paid the bill and they didn't know it. But it's not quite right. The right statement would be the Federal Reserve printed the money and then anyone holding U.S. dollar or U.S. dollar currency derivatives, including bonds, they all paid the bill. And so that means that the Chinese holding a trillion dollars worth of our debt are paying $100 billion a year to $200 billion a year in purchasing power loss to subsidize the American political agenda. Right. But the assumption there is that the government is printing money. And this would be one of the things that I that I really push back on. And as, as an example, if we look at 1950 to let's just call it 2000, you saw a significant decrease in the dollar right there based on your chart. But I would challenge someone to tell me how just the step by step process of the government, quote unquote, printing money. And when I talk about printing money, I'm talking about increasing the supply of M2. So that, you know, broad money. How did the government do that? And it, and it, when you, the conclusion you come to 
is especially within that time frame, the government really didn't print too much money. The government wasn't the, the main contributor to the increase in M2 money supply. And now let me cruise over to a chart. I think you'll find this interesting. And I, like I said, I'd love to get your feedback on this. Uh, we, we go to this time frame. This is a fantastic chart for everyone. It's on longtermtrends.net. And this is M2 money supply consumer price index GDP. The black line is M2 and the, the blue line is uh, GDP, nominal GDP, by the way. And the red line is uh, the CPI. So you see that on this fiat system that you're talking about, Michael, going back to uh, 88 to 2019, the M2 money supply increased by 400%. I'm really a staggering number, 400%. But, and then if, of course, if we take it all the way to 2022, uh, you know, you see it goes up even higher. But taking this right here to 400%, my point here, first off, would be if we take this back for the time frame is 18, uh, roughly 1870 to, uh, or 1868, we'll call it 1867 to 1899. You see, we did not have uh, fiat money here. In fact, we had free banking. This was prior to the Federal Reserve. And we had uh, a, a true gold standard. And you see that the supply, uh, the increase in supply of M2 was identical, identical. So my point there is I'm no fan of the government at all. But when you look at that dollar chart, you, you, I don't think it's accurate to say that if we had a fixed money supply, that it would completely eliminate inflation. And my problem with that is a lot of people in the Bitcoin community that, that people that are nowhere near as sophisticated as you are, go and make, uh, they take extreme risk like you know, mortgaging their house, let's say, or the, the credit card, because they believe that there's a 100% certainty that if we do go to a Bitcoin standard, let's just say in 30 years, that we will absolutely have deflation and it'll fix all of these problems because there's a belief that there's a one-to-one -one relationship, first and foremost, with the number of currency units created and the rate of inflation. And they also believe that the government is pretty much the sole uh, supplier of M2 money supply. And it's, and I could go through other timeframes. And the punchline here is this, when you, when you look at these charts, you see that there's not really a strong correlation between money supply growth and inflation. As an example, I'll give you here, you know, we see this 400% increase in M2, but yet the uh, goods and services during that time went down by almost 50%, 45% deflation. So there's no way there's a, a one-to-one -one <clears throat> relationship there. And what, what the, the punchline is, what really matters is this money supply growth relative to real GDP. So for, for Bitcoiners or gold bugs or Austrians, if you're, a, if, you, if you're someone that understands the evils, which you point out very, very well with inflation, it, you've got to not necessarily focus on Bitcoin having a fixed money supply, but you more so have to focus on what produces real GDP growth. And the conclusion that I have come to over and over again is this next chart I'll show you. And that's government spending as a percentage of GDP. So you can just track this. And as this, get, as this increases, 
And you can go from the 1870, you know, that 30 year time period between 1870 and 1900, go from 1930 to 1960, 60 to 90, 90 to where we are today. And as the percentage of government spending, uh, as uh, or as the uh, government spending as a percent of GDP increases, real GDP goes down, which makes sense. The productivity is going down. Therefore, when you do get those increases in M2, it translates directly into consumer price inflation. So my, my point here is that a lot of the people in the Bitcoin community will say, well, Bitcoin has to create deflation as an example, because it's just math. It's just math. It's just math. There's only 21 million and the government can't create more. But it that's not what's important, because if we moved into a Bitcoin standard where, let's say, uh, the government revenue was still 18 percent, which is maybe it would be, maybe it wouldn't be. It's far less certain then we could have an environment where, where, although we have a fixed money supply, we still have consumer price inflation. So uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I, I mean, when we talk about Bitcoin standard, I think a family, an individual or a company can adopt a Bitcoin standard. I, I don't think we're anywhere close to a nation state adopting a Bitcoin standard. And what it really refers to normally is uh, people, uh, people focus upon accumulating and storing their wealth in sound money. And they view the Bitcoin as the soundest money. With regard to inflation, I mean, there's three theoretical sources of inflation. One is acts of God. If there's an earthquake and you live on an island or, or a tsunami and you live on an island and ships can't get to you and there's a shortage of food or fuel, you're going to have inflation on the island. It has nothing to do with monetary policy. It has nothing to do with political or fiscal policy. It has nothing to do with any policy. You just got struck by an earthquake. Uh, the second source is monetary policy. If there's you know 10 houses in the city and the supply of currency increases by a factor of 10, all other things being equal, the price of the houses is going up probably by a factor of 10. The third source of inflation is public policy. You know, if if um, the federal government uh, legislates a 10-hour work week, common sense says that stuff is going to get more expensive than a 40-hour work week or an 80-hour work week. And if, it, if they put a tariff or they make it illegal to import cheap products from China or to fabricate semiconductors in Taiwan, the price of those things is going up. So, so I think if we're reasonable and intellectually honest, we'll say that, that um, all sorts of policy interventions, be they monetary or you know, defense policy, right? Foreign policy, wage and price controls, <laughs> Uh, labor policy, all these policies can create inflation. And my, my general view, and I think most Bitcoiners general view is we want less government and we believe that most public policy intervention is inflationary. And inflation itself caused by po a political process generally is not good for, for the world. And Yep. If, if the politicians weren't passing a law making it illegal to manufacture something somewhere, then someone would have manufactured it and they'd be selling it to you cheaper. And, and so the market economy is functioning in order to drive the price of everything down whenever it can. And the public policy is driving it up. Um, it, so if you would like to tell, by the way, George, I'll Bitcoin. agree with you. Nobody should buy. Bitcoin with their credit card. I have yet to meet anybody that says they bought Bitcoin with a credit card. <laughs> I'm not a fan of credit card debt, um, you know, and I've never recommended people go into debt to buy Bitcoin. I've said uh, that the inverse, which is 
if you had uh, a 30-year mortgage and it was a 2.5% interest, and you're deciding whether you should pay off your mortgage for the rest of your life or whether you should carry the mortgage forward, I, I think that when you're in a financial uh, an environment of financial repression, that is the, the definition being if the inflation rate's 10% and the mortgage rate is 3%, in that repression environment, you're better off to carry debt in an environment where it was the inverse, if the inf if the inflation rate was 3% and the interest rate was 10%, then of course you'd be better off to carry equity. Mm, okay. and, uh, and, and so the other point I'd make, George, though, is you talk about the government, but in fact, there's 180 different governments. So, so you could say, well, I think that the United States didn't create as much money as whatever. Well, what about Venezuela and what about you know, Argentina and what about Brazil and what about everywhere? Everybody in the world, all 8 billion people is struggling with, uh, with money supply or, or currency supplies that are being manipulated by every government. They're also struggling. The other source of inflation and money supply expansion or currency supply expansion to be precise is fractional banking, right? So the banks can create uh, additional currency units. The governments can create additional currency units. And the victims are always the people and the beneficiaries are always the banks and the political systems. Right. Right. And but so, there, Mike, we go back to that idea that there is a one to one relationship where if you increase M2 money supply by one unit, you're going to get an, an additional one unit of consumer price inflation. And when you look at that chart, the, the one that we uh, went over earlier, I won't go over it again. You see that there isn't really a good relationship. George, you're showing a manipulated metric. You're showing CPI. And I just showed you that the inflation rate is double on gold and it's double again on land. Yeah, but and no, this is back in the 1800s, Michael. We, we saw a 400% increase in M2 and we saw prices go down by 50%. Well, if we study monetary history, we know we had hyperinflation in the Revolutionary War. We know we had hyperinflation in the Civil War. Right. So it, we've we've had many bouts of hyperinflation and they all came along with printing, you know, wheelbarrows and wagons full of paper currency. Well, that that but that's where the government is creating the currency. And in this case, it would have been the banking system creating those additional currency units to lend to entrepreneurs to create more goods and services. So that, 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 that's a big difference there. And then it goes back to what you're saying earlier about this inflation, the, the root cause of this inflation isn't necessarily the creation of additional currency units. That's the point I wanna make, especially if those currency units are going up with pretty much the rate of real GDP. The problem is when the currency units being created, whether it's by the government or the banking system, go up in excess to real GDP as a result of the government being a bigger, bigger, bigger part of the overall pie which creates less productivity, which makes real GDP okay, go down. Okay, so, I mean, based on my lifetime in business and the last few hundred years of economic history I have a, a, a vague awareness with, it seems like the real GDP or the, the, the total supply of goods and services or capital equipment in the economy grows about 2 or 3% a year. Like when the economy's working and everything's working normally, you get about 2 or 3% more a year 
And under a gold standard, when the gold supply was growing at two or three percent a year, you could probably have stable prices because the currency supply is is incrementing at the rate of additional goods and services. No, no, look, the, the base money is correct, Michael. But the broad money that's chasing goods and services, the number of currency units, like we see right here, can increase massively, massively. Yeah. So the point is, the government's clearly inflating the currency supply by more than two percent a year. We know uh, that. Well, back Although, here, otherwise, your house wouldn't cost 500 times as much in 90 years. How do you yep. explain the fact that a house cost $40 million today that cost $100,000 90 years ago, other than the fact that there's a lot more currency and the currency units are much weaker than they were 90 years ago? Because real GDP hasn't kept up with the creation of currency units because the government's portion of spending of the overall pie measured in GDP has been increasing. That, that that's the real problem here. It isn't necessarily the money supply. You see, and let, let me well, give if you, you, if you want to say that the government is spending too much money and, and exerting too much centralized control over the economy, and that's the source of inflation, I don't disagree. Like the, yeah. uh, the source of inflation is policy intervention by the government. And if you want, if you want to take an anti-inflationary view, limit the policy intervention or stop intervening in the economy, make the government smaller, shrink it, down to the bare minimum, and you're going to have much less inflation. I completely agree. So that's where I go to the, the Bitcoin community, and maybe you haven't made these statements, but I say, how does Bit, how's there a 100% guarantee that Bitcoin reduces the amount of government spending? And I, I think that could happen, absolutely, and I, I hope it would, but it's, it's really a matter of probabilities there. I mean, it, I, I can argue for being on a Bitcoin standard actually increasing revenue going to the government. And then I okay. could also argue why it would decrease revenue going. To the I government. just say, don't, don't poke the Bitcoiners unnecessarily. The, it's <laughs> look, if you have a million dollars and you have a choice to give it to the federal government by <laughs> buying a million dollars, 30 year T bill and accepting 3% interest for the rest of your life, or buy a million dollars worth of Bitcoin, it seems to me that if you believe in sound money and limited government, you're better off to spend the million on Bitcoin than give them than spend the million on 30 year U.S. sovereign debt. That's their only point. Right. Yeah, the reason I, they're in favor of Bitcoin standard is they think that they think that in a world where where the Chinese government puts a trillion dollars of real financial wealth into the U.S. dollar, that just empowers the Federal Reserve to to, you know, push $200 billion a year worth of more inflation out there or a hundred billion more. And so as the money flows from sovereign debt and currency, and, and by the way, if you were in Argentina, would you tell them to basically buy a million dollars of pesos? I mean, the point is you're making a technical point, but at the end of the day, the solution to the problem is take your money and move it outside of the fiat currency system don't put it in, because it's a zero sum game. It's either in the system or out of the system. Right. But if you, let's just say you take it out of the system, how does that ensure that we have less government in the future if that's the core issue? If you took all the money and you put it into the system, you're empowering the government. You see? Like, for right, example, but, like if, but, if, but you, if you, if you live standard, in the, bit, the government's going to tax Bitcoin. If, Bit, if everything is priced in Bitcoin, uh, the government is going to charge you, let's say, you know, I, I think what they probably do is a sales tax. So let's just assume they have a 50 or 20% sales tax. It's at point of sale. They're still going to be taxing you. It's just they're going to be collecting taxes in Bitcoin. And that doesn't eliminate uh, the government spending. 
so George, let's say that you're, you know, an honest rancher working in Zimbabwe and the year is 1990 and you have a million dollars. Your choice is keep your ranch, buy a million dollars worth of Zimbabwe dollars, buy a million dollars worth of Zimbabwe 30 year government debt, buy a million dollars worth of land in Miami Beach. You see, the point is, you could say you're a patriot and you're going to support the Zimbabwe dollars. Keep the land, you're losing the land. Buy the dollar, it's going to a penny. You have to move your assets out of the system that's collapsing into a system which is not collapsing. Now, the fact that you live already in the U.S. or you live in North America means you have some good options. But if you live in Lebanon, what are you going to tell the person in Lebanon? They have a million dollars. It's in a Lebanese bank and Lebanese pounds. They move it to dollars. The bank seizes the asset, converts it back into pounds, devalues at 20 to one and locks it up for the next 30 years. Yeah. So the point is, what are they supposed to do? So these Bitcoiners, we're not arguing that that buying Bitcoin solves the problems. Uh, you know, uh, well, in the I, think, I think most of them are, Michael. <laughs> most I, no, of them, I, I most think of them that you poke them, are. George. You, you, you're basically trolling them in order to get engagement and no, you'll no, get no, engagement. No, that's but, absolutely not true, Michael. So let's let's make let's. Look, buying Bitcoin or not buying Bitcoin will not end the war in Ukraine. You see, yeah. I mean, the war in Ukraine is inflationary. And nobody in the Bitcoin world says that we're going to buy Bitcoin that'll end the war. We know that there's a lot of a lot of misery and inefficiency in the world. We just happen to think that buying the dollar or leaving your money in a conventional bank is not a solution. So at least you can do something which is constructive, which is which is support another system which is more ethical, more economically sound, more ethically sound, and more technically sound. So it's an incremental movement towards something better. Yeah, I think that if we're talking about Bitcoin just as a digital asset, I, I really don't think we have too much of a, any, of a disagreement there. It's just when Bitcoin moves to being money. That's where I, and, and, and let me be clear, if I was looking for engagement, Michael, I, I definitely wouldn't criticize sound money, uh, which is what I'm doing. I'm actually offering counter arguments because 99% of my audience is either Bitcoiners, gold bugs, or Austrians. And I'm so pissing we, them all off right can now. Can we define, <laughs> well, let's start, you can, you can fight with people on Twitter a lot over, over poorly defined words that people have different definitions for. So let's start by defining money. What is money in your definition? Well, that's a great question. I think it has a lot to do with purchasing power. Okay. And, so uh, if we define money as purchasing power, we define currency as the official formal, uh, formal governmental unit of, of our medium of exchange, then, then the Lebanese pound is a currency, right? But uh, the dollar may be money in the short term, but it isn't money over a hundred years. It's going to zero over a hundred years. And so Bitcoin is money because it's, it's going to hold its value over a hundred years. That's what we well, believe it, in the Bitcoin again, community. Possibility, pr probabilities, Mike. And the gold, yeah, I mean, sure. The gold bugs believe gold is money. Uh, let's, you know, a thousand acres in the middle of Oklahoma that's got uh, natural gas or oil underneath it, that could be viewed as money in that regard. It's a, pro it's a property, right? Property would be low frequency money that holds its value over time. And then the question just becomes, if you want to hold 
$100 million worth of money today for 100 years, are you going to buy a market basket of currencies with it? Are you going to buy a market basket of bonds with it? Are you going to buy equities with it? Are you going to buy commodities with it? Or are you going to buy property with it? I would say... I would say the problem with commodities is commodities are getting increasingly, uh, increasingly less scarce because people can manufacture infinite commodities with technology. So they don't, they don't hold their value that well. Equities are risky. Maybe they'll work, but you have to trust that Apple computer will still be a digital monopoly in a hundred years. That's a challenge. You know, you, you can't hold currencies. All currencies are designed by their governments to go to zero. And the only question is, are they losing 7% of their value a year or 14% or 21% or 40%? That's the question. But they're obviously not, they're not good long-term uh, assets to hold. And so they're not going to hold your money. You're going you're gonna to deplete your money. And so properties, properties make sense. You could, you could own Leonardo da Vinci's you know, painting for 100 years, and it will probably be worth more in 100 years. You could own... You could own like 10,000 acres of natural gas. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know, right? You could own farmland. You could own buildings or you could own Bitcoin. And the question becomes, what's the most scarce desirable property? In the US, there's a big debate and we can debate all, you know, I know a lot of billionaires that make money holding New York City real estate and they think that's good property. I know commercial real estate moguls. I know people that are big tech moguls, right? Larry Page and Sergey Brin did fine owning some equity. But on the other hand, if you go to Africa or South America, you don't have the same portfolio of property options. The thing that's special about Bitcoin is Bitcoin is an ethical option for 8 billion people without prejudice. A, 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 a taxi driver in Nigeria can buy the same Bitcoin that a billionaire on the Upper East Side of New York can buy. And that is not true with regard to all the other properties that I just rifled through. Right, but they're, but they're buying it to increase or maintain their purchasing power, theoretically. It is, a, it is a monetary asset they can hold for a long period of time, which is available to anybody with an Android phone. Right. So, but your argument yeah. would be there's an extremely high probability that it increases in purchasing power over time. Uh, I would probably argue that, um, I don't know that I'd argue that the probability was as high as, as you may say the probability is, but I George, think we George, can both I would just say, I would just say we don't have a better idea. Right. You, you can say there's risk in the future. I agree. Like I can, you could main, make a hundred possible investments and they all have risk. And if we want to criticize each one of them, I can give you 25 ways that every single investment fails. But the question is, what are you going to do if you have to do something? Right. What what is a better idea for eight billion people that are blocked from the banking system? If you can't buy the U.S. dollar, what? What's your better idea if you live in Afghanistan right now? What, yeah. what is the idea? And if you have a better idea, then a reasonable criticism is this better idea is better than Bitcoin. And so people should buy that instead. I get it. But if you don't have a better idea, then you're just saying, well, you know, Bitcoin's not perfect and people have imperfect ideas about it. And that's that's fine. But the point really is uh, I am cheerfully the, 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 the advocating problem. a constructive solution for people that have no other option. Hey guys, I wanna remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the 
incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Ceresna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. I'm not saying it isn't a solution. In fact, with on my live streams, I've talked about uh, my own portfolio and allocating a certain portion of the speculative assets. And I think Bitcoin is, is very interesting from that standpoint. So I'm not, I'm, again, I'm not anti-Bitcoin. I'm just think the way that it's presented within the community as though it's a solution and though it's a certainty. Okay, and well, George, can we that's just- That's where I push back. Let's and, make another then, point, which, yeah, is, which is you're talking about Twitter. Okay, there's 100 million people plus that have Bitcoin. There's only a couple of million on Twitter that talk about it. And then you're probably reacting to the people that are the most aggressive Twitter advocates. And what you'll find on Twitter is that the more inflammatory the behavior, the more engagement you get. So yeah, I, I agree, the, but I'm the also people talking that are trolling about... you on Twitter aren't necessarily representative of, quote unquote, the community. In fact, yeah. there probably is no community. There's there's 100 million people with 100 million different worldviews. And if you want to pick a particular segment and criticize them, we could do that. But I don't think it's constructive because, because Bitcoin doesn't have a personality. Bitcoin is like electricity or steel or clay or, or fire. It doesn't, it's not represented by a group. There's no issuer. But, it's but, just but, a but, technology. But, right. But to a certain You can degree, have any is... opinion you want of it. Right. But to a certain degree, it is represented by thought leaders in the space like yourself. And whenever I listen to podcasts with a lot of people that I would consider friends, uh, they discuss Bitcoin in terms of certainties and solutions. And that's the only reason that I push back with counter arguments on Twitter. That, that's it. And that's why I wanted I was so excited to have this conversation, which I think is great. I'm looking forward to it's a lot more interesting too. when there's a little bit of debate, isn't there? Yeah, Is but it, you, yeah. You, you, you see, because, and I've heard you on several podcasts, and, and you guys do, you talk about Bitcoin and certainties and solutions. And that's just what I'm, I'm trying to just tell people that that might not be the case. Therefore, when you're analyzing risk and how much Bitcoin you should own your portfolio, you've got to take these things into consideration. And you can't just blindly assume that, this, that these things are inevitabilities. George, if, if you want to publish a table of the optimal portfolio balance of Bitcoin based upon which country you live in and which year you're making the asset allocation decision, I will gleefully retweet it. <laughs> right. But I mean, the point is, you know, it's a different calculus for someone in North Korea than Cuba, yeah. than Zimbabwe, than Argentina. And people feel differently about this in 2022 than they did in 2019. So yeah, we can we can have a very articulate, uh, nuanced discussion of risk reward and portfolio allocation. 
if we want to be constructive and I'm, I'm happy to, to be constructive. In yeah, that and, and that, that's what I'm trying to do here as well. And I think that, that again, the, the major differences is I'm talking about, uh, you know, probabilities with Bitcoin being money, uh, you're focusing on Bitcoin as kind of an asset class and compared to what, uh, which I can totally appreciate. And uh, so I, I don't want to spend too much more time on this because I think hopefully I've made my point. And if people want to check this out, again, these charts are at longtermtrends.net. And you can uh, go through this and do your own calculations. And you'll see, going back to this chart, that uh, the correlation, the strong correlation there is not really with money supply growth as measured by M2, but it's about government spending as a percentage of GDP. And that's what creates an environment where there's more money creation above and beyond real GDP. And you get that inflation that we all agree is so bad for the poor and middle class. So well, George, yeah, before we wrap up here, yeah. I just I just summarize my thought, which is sure. the world is an imperfect place. Uh, there's 8 billion people on it. There are many, many governments that are coming and going. Uh, economics and macroeconomics and political economy is is a hotly debated discipline. And, and there are a lot of people debating the cause of economic malaise and the cause of wars. And then there's a lot of people that have opinions about how to run governments better and how to fix problems. And each of those is a hundred different fields. I think that uh, I'm humble enough. And I think, uh, I think it's important to be humble enough to realize that you can't necessarily solve all the problems or even, even necessarily understand all the nuances in all those areas. And the most constructive way to think about Bitcoin is Bitcoin is uh you know, the first and the most successful digital monetary asset. It's an ethical, uh, it's an ethical digital commodity without an issuer. And the right way to think of it is, is it is an option to hold in your portfolio alongside of U.S. dollars, if you can, alongside of local currency, alongside of your mixture of investments in stocks. It is an alternative to buying a building or buying a part of a building. It's an alternative to investing in real estate or collectibles. And if people just focus upon, do I want to own $1,000 of gold or land or equity or dollars or pesos? And how do I balance that depending on who I am and what stage of my life I am? That is the constructive way to engage on this because... I, I don't know how to solve the problems that the government has. And if we started down that road, we would be talking for a thousand hours. All I know is that it's more constructive to ask yourself the question, do I want to buy a thousand dollars of Bitcoin or do I want to buy a thousand dollars worth of a REIT that owns some apartment buildings, you know, on the beach? And if you look at it like that, then there's an analysis there, right? And there's and the, and the answer changes dep depending on time. Like right now, the short-term interest rate is 4.7%. And a year ago, it was 12 basis points. So, so there's an interesting constructive analysis there. And it's, and it's a life or death analysis for people that don't live in the U.S., that live in – if you made the wrong decision in Lebanon, you have no money. Okay, so this is, this is an analysis worth doing. We can't tell the Lebanese people how to fix their government. I don't, I don't know how to fix that, right? All I know is that I can teach you how to store your life savings in a digital asset that you have some semblance of control. And if the government in Lebanon decides to tax Bitcoin 10% a year, you can move your Bitcoin and move yourself to save your life. 
but you can't move your building. Yeah. And you can't go to an airport with a bunch of bars of gold. So, so the, there's a constructive, uh, a constructive analysis to be done here. It is a solution to some people. And I would rather just offer a constructive solution than spend my time uh, debating the problems in the world, of which there are numerous. Right. But, I, it, but if you don't understand the problem, I don't know if you can articulate a solution. You see, and that's just what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make people hopefully understand that, that, that money supply growth in and of itself is not the problem. The, bit, the Bitcoiners so if you want to allocate say, time and energy to fixing the problem, don't yeah. allocate it to 21 million or fixed money supply. Allocate it to shrinking the government. The Bitcoin, the Bitcoiners would say the problem is that individuals don't have a way to store or save their wealth. That's the problem that, that Bitcoin is addressing. And Bitcoin is an engineered network to offer people um, a, a decentralized, permissionless, open, ethical way to store their wealth over long periods of time. It doesn't solve a bunch of other problems, but it is engineered so that people have, have the option to trust a bank in cyberspace run by software instead of trusting the Lebanese bank or the Argentine bank. That's, what, right. that's what we can accomplish. All right, Michael, I, I sincerely appreciate it. That was a lot of fun. I'm going to hand it over to Doomberg. I've got one thing that I will say in closing. I say this all the time in Twitter, and you can disagree or agree with this. I always say that if Bitcoin is perfect money, which I hope it is, uh, even if it is, it's controlled by imperfect human beings in an imperfect world, and therefore, inevitably, it will be imperfect. <laughs> that's just my that's my my attitude that uh you know we, we've got to keep that into into consideration it may be better but it's always going to behave imperfectly because we human beings will screw it up at the end of the day hey great great discussion guys really enjoyed it michael uh, appreciate the opportunity thanks for coming michael, you guys are... do, you, do you want me to keep i think you want me to keep those charts up to reference some of those with doomberg yeah. don't you some of the ones you I, had in the I don't email. i don't think we'll need them um i've Pretty simple, okay. basic set of questions, just, but but if we do, let, we'll pull them up. Yeah, yeah. Just let me know, Michael, if you need, and I okay. can shoot right over. Yeah, Michael, great, great sport for being here. Enjoyed the conversation, and uh, I just want to say for everybody listening, look, Michael is an officer of a publicly traded company, and this conversation is not protected by safe harbor. And so, um, I've tried hard to limit my questions to um, clarification questions about the publicly, you know, the, the publicly available filings of the company, 10Q um, quarterly presentations. But and Michael and I had a brief conversation before we started. You know, if I ask him something that's uh, out of bounds, he'll be the first to say, look, I just can't answer that here. And I would respect that. And I hope that uh, you would too. So um, with those clarifying sort of comments out of the way, Michael, I just want to begin with a with a simple question. You know, as, as you guys were talking, you've obviously con essentially converted MicroStrategy into um, predominantly a you know Bitcoin asset holding company. Um, and with all of what's gone on in the sort of digital asset universe, um, what you would sort of call crypto or altcoins, um, but also, you know, some people got some Bitcoins tied up in some of these issues as well. There's a lot of questions about um, custody and sanctity of that custody. And, and in your latest 10Q, you, you mentioned that uh, some 130,000 Bitcoin that MicroStrategy holds is held at, quote, accounts at institutional grade digital asset custodians. Um, I thought I remembered you mentioning who those custodians were on a previous podcast, although I could be remembering wrong. Is there anything you could say about who they are and how protected that is and what sort of risk management protocols MicroStrategy has for its Bitcoins. Cause you know, the old expression is, you know, not your keys, not your, not your coins. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, um, 
We have uh, three different relationships, and uh, one of them is Coinbase uh, that has been disclosed in the past. Um, I don't really wish to disclose the other two right now, um, but they're all U.S. companies. Uh, they're all regulated U.S. companies. They're all audited U.S. companies. And, and before we would work with any of these counterparties, we would put them through a vetting process that ranges anywhere from six months to 18 months of time. And we would review all their, all their uh, financials, their auditors, and all their regulatory licenses, and then all their controls uh, as custodians. So you could think of it as just like, you know, the vetting you would put through your prime broker. So, um, so, and we continually focus on that. We've never actually, um, our Bitcoin's in cold storage and, uh, and we keep control of it in cold storage through these, through a whole set of controls. We have uh, a lot of internal controls over, over how that uh, Bitcoin can move. And it's of course, multiple people that I won't disclose that would sure. have to approve things. And then we make sure that our counterparties and our custodians have equivalent or much tighter controls than us. Um, the reason I bring it up is, of course, you know, a lot of people thought, for example, and I know you've been critical of uh, Sam Bankman-Fried as we have, and on yeah. that, I think we agree. But you know, FTX US, which was supposed to be held separate, and and many people I think falsely believed was bankruptcy remote from the rest of his empire. Um, there is some risk in this regard, right? I mean, in your 10Q, it says so. Um, which is you certainly believe and have reason to believe that um, MicroStrategy's Bitcoin would be bankruptcy remote if the custodian, um, say, made a bunch of bad loans to Bitcoin miners and went belly up. Um, but that's undeveloped, right? There is no true precedent for a crypto bankruptcy, which we're about to get, of course, with all of these firms. I, th so like I, I think that uh, legitimately one of the most important things you can do is focus upon upon uh, the risk control the risk profile and the controls around custody of the bitcoin and how you move it around we we've uh were approached by genesis by blockfi by celsius by ftx by three arrows every one of the cast of characters that you know have been in the news of late and we've never did a penny of business and we wouldn't uh, do a penny of business with any of them. And primarily they were, they were all unregulated, most of them offshore entities. And I would say that if you were the, if you were the, the ultimate white shoe firm, you still would take 12 months. We would take 12 months before we would decide to vet you or, or be able to vet you. So we're very slow about that. Um, and it is something we keep track of, but like, for example, even, even, uh, when, when, uh, we did a very small piece of business, uh, with Silvergate where we, we borrowed $200 million, 205 million from them that we took right way risk. We would say that, um, we have the money and we also have the Bitcoin. Okay. And so we kept the Bitcoin it's in a segmented account, but we have custody of the Bitcoin. So. So we would never transfer our Bitcoin to a counterparty uh, that could be liquidated. My, my problem with FTX and, and like exchanges always was you put $100 million of Bitcoin on the exchange and then you borrow against it uh, and then they have a flash crash. And then for one minute, they manipulate the price down and then they force liquidate and force sell you and then the price recovers. Sure. And and you've just been victimized. So of course, you know, I would just never, I would never do business with somebody like that. And I would recommend 
I wouldn't recommend that any individual, it doesn't matter whether you're a company or you're an individual investor, I don't think it makes sense to ever do business uh, in that situation because you can be forced liquidated on a Saturday night while you're asleep. So I, I would suppose or assume that your um, vetting process for your custodians includes um, pretty strong inspection of what the custodian itself does to make money and their own personal bankruptcy risk and so on, just to eliminate that small chance that um, say, you know, like what, what happened with FTX US where people who even had Bitcoin stored on that um, exchange are now mirrored in a, in a chapter 11 bankruptcy filing. Yeah. Um, you it, can't it tell does. us who, who they are, but I assume that you have at least vetted that the custodians of your Bitcoin beyond Coinbase aren't like um, taking significant risks that might threaten their own sovereignty. Yeah. We, I mean, we have to obsess over that. We also have to obsess over whether or not we have clear title. And, and so we're not transferring title uh, or to the assets. Uh, they're not marginable. They're not, uh, they're, we're not giving up any collateral. If, if we had done something, you know, when you do something with say Genesis, where you give them Bitcoin and they own it, and then they rehypothecate sure. it out. That stuff is, is totally beyond the pale. We would never consider that it's a deal breaker. Um, uh, the only way we use them is we just use them for custody. And then we look at the, cu the custody and make sure that the assets are segmented in the same way that the assets are segmented, you know, with any other custodian in the United States. So uh, in that context, then, um, just to give sort of, because if you know, you're, you're an investor in MicroStrategy, you're buying equity ownership in MicroStrategy, which is now predominantly an asset holder of Bitcoin. So in a way, you're sort of buying a small portion of the Bitcoin that MicroStrategy has purchased. Um, regardless of who the custodian is, um, could you reveal the wallet addresses where those Bitcoins are held? Or would, like I, that's one of the big controversies, of course, with GBTC and Coinbase, and um, they claim some weird security risks. Um, but I'm just curious, just because you know, with this policy that you've set, of course, of not disclosing these um, these custodians was made long before all of this contagion has exploded, and I think investors are correctly reconsidering the risk profile they might be taking when they invest. In a company yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's realistic for a publicly traded company to be revealing stuff that detailed to the general public. It actually creates much more security risk than than it addresses. You know, just like J.P. Morgan's not revealing all of their accounts and and all of their addresses and locations of all their assets either, right? You're just creating a target for someone. So yeah, no. <laughs> You're, you're not, I, and you're not going to see that from any public no, I, company. Just so you know, like the people that ask that question, they've never run a public company, right? My lawyers, my accountants would let me do it if I wanted to, right? Everybody would just go ballistic crazy. Um, Plus, you would you would have people like continually staring at every every transaction into and out of those addresses. Yeah. And yeah, sure. and that stuff happens for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with with even necessarily buying and selling. Um, last question on this regard then. So I wanted somebody sent me a DM earlier that uh, you had said on a podcast, but I couldn't find it that um, the other two were Nidig and, and um, Fidelity. But if, I guess if you're not going to, to reveal that here, if you already have before, just curious as to why, why would the, the nature of the custody would be required to be secret, uh, the custodian would be required to be secret if, if you've done the full vetting that, um, that you claim that you have. Well, I mean, the obvious reason is because we don't want to create attack surfaces for, ah, you know, see. hostile yeah. actors, right? Got it. Um, I, okay, so then that is a pretty significant risk. If hostile actors can attack the surface, um, 
I'm just are we really going to do this? Like you're going to we're going to go around in circles. No, we can, we can switch topics. Like, um, so one like, of the, I mean, I, it's a serious, but I, you have to admit, Michael, like in this environment where people have had their their Bitcoin trapped in bankruptcy filings, the nature of the risk they're taking is really important. And I would think that um, a publicly traded company would want to be on the as far to the other side of disclosure as you can safely be. But if you think the security, oh, risk no, I, would, I would I would say that we've got them with regulated custodians in the United States that have been extensively, extensively vetted and audited. And and, uh, you know, I don't think I'd say anything more than that. OK, we'll move we'll move on. Um, I want to talk about the big decision, of course, uh, to pivot to Bitcoin in the first place um, was driven by having excess cash and um, and your analysis of Bitcoin's relative quality, which you described eloquently in your conversation with uh, with George. Uh, but sort of crossed the Rubicon when you decided to borrow money to buy Bitcoin. And one thing you said earlier that I know I wrote wrote down was I'm not for um, people using their credit card uh, or to go into debt to buy Bitcoin. But you did that with MicroStrategy. Can you discuss the reason why you did that, because those are sort of hard fiat commitments that MicroStrategy has to make to repay back those loans. I'm uh, wondering if you're, you know, given the price action sure. since you entered that those debt agreements, uh, what your view is now. Yeah, well, so just to, just to recount some history, right? I, I started the company in 1989, so I was the CEO for 33 years, and we came public in 98, so I've been the public company CEO for 24 years. So uh, by the time we got to the year 2020, um, I had uh, been running the company for quite a while. And uh, we, um, in the depths of, uh, of the lockdowns, our stock was about, hit $90 a share. By August of 2020, our enterprise value is about $666 million. We had 500, between five and 600 million in cash. And uh, the stock was trading like 120. We were a low growth entity with a lot of cash flow. And, um, and the interest rates were pegged at zero. Jerome Powell at the point said, I'm not even thinking about thinking about changing interest rates or raising them for the next four years. You know, joy, right? That's what he said then. It didn't turn out that way. But um, at that point, we really had to decide what we were going to do. And in my opinion, uh, you know, having tried every business strategy, and I, I tried them all, right? We tried an innovation strategy. Uh, we tried, you know, tripling our sales and marketing budget. We tried buying back hundreds of millions of dollars of the stock. We tried focusing, you know, intensely on just the operations. We tried international expansion. Everything we tried, we weren't able to actually move the stock price up. We were having a hard time as a company moving forward. And then we watched Oracle, Facebook, you know, especially Google, uh, Apple getting huge, right? In essence, the problem we had was an existential threat, which is when uh, when Google and Facebook and Amazon became trillion dollar companies, they could pretty much hire every single employee you had and pay them more money than you're paying them. And uh, they, the employees wouldn't even have to move across the street. They would just, you know, repath their browser and they'd work from home for a company that is in Silicon Valley instead of working from home for a company in Northern Virginia. So at that point, 
we really had to decide, are we going to sell the company and or are we going to liquidate it? And our choice really was you can liquidate the company, you can liquidate the treasury, give all the cash back to the shareholders and liquidate the company and sell it. And then they'll liquidate the product. And of course, then all the employees lose their jobs and the customers lose their product. And that was one choice. And uh, I, I tell you the rest of the story because it's not like we had 12 weeks of difficulty. We spent 12 years trying every other option. And we got to the point where it's pretty clear our choice was liquidate the company and throw in the towel or take a risk and do something with the capital. So we bought Bitcoin uh, on August 10th. We made this announcement. And, um, and on that day, or maybe the next morning, we announced that we bought $250 million worth of Bitcoin and we announced a $250 million Dutch auction. So our first purchase wasn't with debt at all. Our first purchase was with outstanding cash and we paired it with a Dutch auction and we allowed our shareholders the ability to get out at a premium if they didn't want to go on with the strategy. And uh, at that point, the stock was 122, 123. You know, um, the auction was at one or the Dutch auction was 140 price. So about uh, 20 days went by. At the end of the 20 days, the stock was trading above the Dutch auction price. We only had about $60 million of shares tendered. We had an extra $175 million in cash. And so around September 10th, we bought another $175 million worth of Bitcoin. So you see, the first $425 million was actually cash on hand. Then uh, what happened next is... Uh, the company generated a bunch more cash. We bought some more Bitcoin with cash on hand. The stock tripled, about tripled. And so by December of that year, we had the ability um, to raise money uh, via convertible debt offering at a 75 basis point yield or 75 basis point fee. So why did we do that? Well, we were actually raising money with a strike price, which was the 10 year high for the company it was 398. The, uh, the interest cost was less than a percentage. It was very, very cheap. The convertible markets were uh, very supportive and the deal was actually upsized. At that point, uh, I mean, Bitcoin went from, we were buying it between 10 and 12,000 for the first 425 million. Then it actually started marching up from 12,000 up to the 18, $19,000 range or above. So that second slug was, uh, was a very favorable convertible debt offering. Then Bitcoin doubled, our stock doubled. So if you're a shareholder in the company, from that point forward, the stock's traded between 400 and 1,000. And you could have, you know, some number of weeks, a few months after the Dutch auction, you could have actually sold your stock for triple, quadruple if you didn't want to go along with the strategy. Um, we actually tested the market with a Dutch auction to see if people were supportive, right? There's, there's, there's no better indicator of shareholder support than people choose to tender their shares for a profit or they don't, right? So we knew that. So we adopted that strategy. And then in February of 2021, we did another convert offering because the markets, the corporate debt markets were just about as favorable as they have been in my lifetime or your lifetime. The offering started around $600 million and it ended up getting upsized to, to $900 million with a $150 million green shoe. So it was $1 billion, $50 million. And uh, the interest rate was zero. 
So, and the, uh, the premium was 37% or something. So the strike on that was $1,420 a share or something. So 10X the Dutch auction price of seven months or eight months previous. So the question is, why do we do that? Because we had the ability to raise a billion dollars for seven years at 0% interest to pursue the company's strategy and the shareholders were aligned behind the strategy. And I, I think that if you went to any, any company anywhere on earth and you said, are you willing to invest a billion dollars in your business at 0% interest? The only question would be, well, is it a capital intensive business or not? And if it's not capital intensive, the answer is no, we don't need the money. We're not going to raise it. But if it is capital intensive business, then you can raise a billion for 0% interest. Then yeah. So, so we did that one. Uh, and then what happened next is, uh, you know, Bitcoin traded down. The convert markets didn't make any sense. It would have been diluted to the shareholders. But we had the ability to go to the corporate senior debt markets. And, and when we did this, junk bond index was at the all-time low. It was about 4% was the junk bond index. And that was the lowest in 30 years. And so we had a chance to raise senior secured debt at the lowest interest rate in 30 or 40 years. And, uh, and we hadn't done it. So we did it because it was creative to the shareholders to do it. Then Bitcoin rallied again. Our stock doubled. And at that point, we decided, well, we didn't want to put any more debt on the balance sheet. We wanted to deleverage. So we actually announced a billion dollar shelf registration and we sold a billion dollars worth of equity at uh, some price in the range of $770 a share or something that, that the actual numbers you can look up in our filings. Sure. But it was, uh, we were basically selling it at five times the price when we started on this journey. So so we sold that equity and we raised capital, we deleveraged, and of course we put it into Bitcoin because our strategy was to acquire and hold Bitcoin. So if you look, look at all of our steps, we have consistently leveraged, deleveraged uh, in order to acquire more Bitcoin. And now we're up to about 130,000 Bitcoin uh, because, because our view is the Bitcoin is gonna go up over time. Um, yeah, I think probably the, uh, the the other point worth making is, okay, so why why should we do it? Why would anybody want to invest in MicroStrategy? I'm going to give you the quick reasons why. Number one, a lot of people in the marketplace want to be long Bitcoin with a zero fee or a moderate yield. There is no spot Bitcoin ETF. Right. And so we offer an operating company where you can actually buy Bitcoin. Now you can say, why don't they buy the Bitcoin? Well, the world is full of hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars of capital that are locked up via their mandate, and they are not able to trade custody property or commodities. It is literally either illegal for them to do it, or their mandates prevent them from investing in, in the commodity itself or the property they have to invest in the security. The third reason is, because, you know, if you put a million dollars in a micro strategy, you can do it through your prime broker in a few minutes and it's marginable. 100%. Whereas the, the fourth reason is, right, if you wanted to set up that, uh, that particular account, it would probably take you six months to a year to vet the custodian and get comfortable with them. And most people don't have six months to a year, even if they could legally do it. Um, another reason is, 
because well, some people want to short it, right? So, so like if 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 you're uh, long natural gas and people hate natural gas, then they're going to short it. If they want to go long natural gas, they go long. So we offer both sides of the trade, but you can also sell and trade the volatility via our options. So if you go look at the January twenty calls in the money or at the money for MicroStrategy, you get an imputed one hundred and twenty percent yield yep. annual. So you know. If, if people are willing to actually take risk on altcoins to get a 20% yield, well, you can just actually own a, a regulated NASDAQ security that's just pure Bitcoin and get 120% yield if you know how to execute that. So that's another reason why you would do it. Convertible arbitrage is another reason. We've got a, a set of converts and people arb the converts versus the equity. And they also arb our stock versus Beto versus Grayscale versus Bitcoin. And if you're a quant trader, right, it's your dream. Some people want macroeconomic exposure. Some people want crypto economic exposure. They want, they want to trade the crypto market. And then um, if you look at the expense and the inefficiency of, um, of getting exposure via options like Beto or the expense of getting exposure via Grayscale, we just happen to have a pretty favorable you know, efficiency ratio because we actually don't charge a fee. And we're doing it with spot Bitcoin and we've already worked out how to custody it and how to acquire it. We're the only operating company that I know of that's got a, a Bitcoin strategy. It's not easy to do it. You have to basically turn yourself inside out, right? We literally did a Dutch auction, which is the same as offering to buy back all of the excess stock in the company in order to invert the balance sheet of the company to do it. And of course, we have the ability to acquire more with a more Bitcoin with either debt or cash, cash flow or equity or, or managing something in the futures market or taking advantage of, of volatility, of the basis trade, should we want to. So, so that makes us uh, an interesting company, right? But both literally interesting in a Twitter sense, right? Like that I got 2.9 million followers almost, whereas I had zero before I started. And then financially interesting in the classical sense that if you look at the trading of our stock and the open interest in our equity and our securities, of course, it's orders of magnitude more than we were in July of 2020. And ultimately, that's a benefit to the shareholders and it's a benefit to the employees. And what it means is, is we can compensate our employees with, uh, with RSUs and, and equity that, that uh, keeps them from getting headhunted away by Google and Amazon. So our employee morale went up, our turnover went down, our shareholders made a huge amount of money. If you look at the enterprise value of the company, we went from 666 million to about 4.3 billion over that time frame. So the enterprise value of the company increased by 550%. If you looked at the equity, uh, over that time frame versus our options, we were up 41% as of close of market on Friday. You know, NASDAQ is down 2% close of market on Friday. Gold was down 12%. Bonds were down 20%. So in terms of all of our options, we couldn't, we didn't have any other practical options that would have done better. I would, uh, I would admit that it's been a roller coaster and the volatility has been extreme. But the model that I will give you is a bunch of people got up in Northern Europe and realized that their life was hopeless in the year 1700. And they got on a wooden ship 
and they sailed to the new world and they damn near died on the journey. But if they'd stayed, there was nothing for them. And so you have to take a risk if you're going to be a pioneer and go to a new land. And Bitcoin is hope. And our shareholders have benefited every step of the way, uh, even though we have taken just a brutal volatility beating in the marketplace in order to be exposed to this asset. Yeah, I actually agree with that history and um, and don't dispute anything that you just said. Um, and in fact, your equity is kind of pricing like a call option on Bitcoin with expensive volatility, of course. But um, the real question, of course, is with today at Bitcoin at 16.5, you do have to pay back that debt. So even though the the interest rate um, is very favorable and it was opportunistic at the time to take advantage of it. It was still sort of a leverage bet on the directional dollar price of Bitcoin. My one question would be sort of what's the refinancing strategy if Bitcoin doesn't recover substantially from here? Is it literally just yeah, going to have to sell some stock um, to pay back that debt? I mean, the, the first slug of debt comes due in 2025, so we still have some time, um, but that debt still has to be repaid. And in fact, if you look at the Silvergate loan, um, they probably, the way events are trending today, might not be around to refinance that. And there aren't that many banks that will take Bitcoin as collateral for a dollar loan. So I know it's only 200 million and you could probably sell a bit of stock and clear that up and you have some cash in the balance sheet today. But refinance risk is real, you would agree, and, and something that you must be thinking about. Yeah, so I mean, we, we do think about it, but let's look at the big picture. We've got about 2.2 billion worth of Bitcoin. We've got 1.7 billion worth of unsecured debt that's convertible to equity. So uh, in this particular case, we could sell the Bitcoin and pay off the $1.7 billion and still have uh, excess assets. We've got $500 million in senior debt, but it's actually secured against the cash flows of the software business. And, and that business is, is a healthy cash generating business. So we'll, we anticipate we'll be able to refinance that over time. We'll probably be able to refinance the other debt if we want to over time. The big wild card is what will Bitcoin be at? Uh, what will the price of Bitcoin be at in the middle of 2025, which is two and a half years out, right? We, we're not going to stand still, right? So we have between now and then, right, uh, to refinance anything, to sell more equity, to generate cash flow, to monetize the volatility. And uh, in the worst case, we can pay back the debt. We just won't have as much Bitcoin, right? So it's not clear um, what will happen as we go out into the, uh, into the indefinite future. But um, it seems pretty clear that we're better off than if we'd done nothing. If, uh, and and if, if Bitcoin starts to recover even a small amount, right, then this all turns itself around in a hurry. But right now, I think we're pretty well um, we're pretty well capitalized in terms of assets. We didn't borrow the money to invest in sales and marketing, and it's gone, sure, right? Sure. We borrowed the money to buy an asset, and the asset has has a lot of value in a lot of different ways. Yeah. So, last question for me, and I'll turn it back to George. And I appreciate your patience. I know these are probably questions that you're not used to getting, but I think they're important ones for equity holders of your stock. And I, I do give you full credit for for being here today and answering them all um, as, as forthrightly as you have. Um, with the Silvergate loan, um, there was a report that there had been a margin loan, a margin call, and that was denied, but maybe I'm not up to speed on the news. But um, when I go through the filings in the first quarter, you had pledged 19,400 Bitcoin and change. And then in the most recent 10Q, it was up to 30,000. Is that not a 
a margin call? And is there a price at which you sort of run out of Bitcoin to pledge and you'd have to put some cash in to, to top off that loan? I mean, there are Twitter trolls that like to make lots of noise about that, but it's really just engagement. Um, if you look at the loan itself, uh, the loan is $205 million and we have to have um, a loan to value 50% or less, which means we need to actually have $410 million worth of Bitcoin, you know, uh, posted in an account to cover it as collateral. So... Uh, when uh, when we entered into that loan, I think the loan to value is like five percent against our collateral. And obviously, it's been uh, a bad year for Bitcoin, right? Probably one of the worst years for Bitcoin. So we've just had to post uh, additional collateral in order to stay ahead of that. But uh, the price at which we wouldn't have any Bitcoin left to post would be like thirty five hundred dollar Bitcoin, right? So so if we thought Bitcoin was going to go from 16,000 to, to somewhat less, we might post a bit more collateral so that, uh, so that we're always ahead of it. But it's not a margin call. It's really just making sure that we're over collateralized. We've been very conservative with regard to our collateral. Great, thanks. That, that's the one same One last point is the company yeah, has additional assets too, right? We have cash. So, yeah. so um, in this particular case, and, and we don't really have another, um, we don't have another, uh, need or use for that Bitcoin as collateral. So we just thought it was a pretty good use of the collateral in order to cover the loan. That's the same number I came up with. So I think we're running the same math. Uh, 3560, I think was the number just based on the 410 obligation divided by the number of Bitcoin that you have ready to pledge to these guys. So George, I'll turn it back to you, Michael. Really appreciate it. It was fun. And uh, not every day you get a chance to ask, you know, a publicly traded CEO some questions and uh, really appreciate your answers. George, back to you, bud. Yeah, thanks, guys. That was really cool. Michael, I'm just curious, is there anything that would get you to sell your Bitcoin? No. <laughs> <laughs> Easiest question all day, huh? Look, if, if, if financial circumstances force us to, right? Like if, if I literally had, a, had a, a note come due, right, then maybe. Uh, ultimately, we run the company in the best interest of the common stock shareholders. Right. So, I, you know, like I, I guess to be more serious about it, because I, I really shouldn't uh, be jocular, like if if the um, if the common stock price traded at a level where it was accretive to the common stock shareholders to sell some Bitcoin instead of issue the equity. Well, we're not going to dilute the shareholders in order to avoid uh, making a trade. So we would we would trade in order to make sure that. Uh, the stock is properly reflects the net asset value of the company. Right. 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 We, we wouldn't want to be in a situation like Grayscale is. You see, the difference between us and Grayscale is we have the ability to buy and to sell and to adjust our position in order to make sure that the stock doesn't get mispriced. Yeah, that's a great question and quick follow up. I mean, actually, if you look at it, if you net out the debt, MicroStrategy stock is trading at a premium to the Bitcoin it holds, especially sort of. Um, potential tax consequences of a sale above what you bought if Bitcoin were to uh, appreciate in value from here. Um, do you ever think about just um, the issuing more stock, taking the debt off the table until that 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 premium closes? Because actually compared to GBTC, the market is giving you a premium for all the reasons we talked about, you know, volatility and all the utility of the trading vehicle. I don't think your shareholders would, would mind if you took the debt off the table. I mean, that's the one real risk, you know, Michael, when I've studied your company and is the leveraging up and, and that actually there is a price of Bitcoin where the equity potentially zeros, whereas if you had had no debt, the equity is always going to have some residual value. 
Um, do you ever think about no. maybe just just doing another um, at the market and saying, look, as long as we're trading at a premium, it makes sense for us to to take that risk off the table? It's a great idea. We already did it. Um, yeah. We did uh, six well, months could, ago or so. Yeah, if you go back, you'll find yeah. that we actually filed the five hundred million dollar shelf registration. Oh, so that's I don't unused. know the exact date. Yeah. Okay. But uh, but we have that on file. So you have so, dry powder that you haven't already sold. I remember the billion that you raised, but you have 500 million share um, S3 or whatever it is on, on a shelf registration already already filed. I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah. So, we're, you know, the key to keep in mind is, <clears throat> first of all, you know, Bitcoin has been a wild ride, right? It went from oh, sure. 10,000 to 66,000 down to whatever, 30,000, back up to 65,000, down to something, up to 45,000, down to 16,000. So it's been a wild ride. And uh, we've uh, we've basically been managing as rationally as we could based upon market gyrations over the past 28 months in those 28 months. Right. The, the junk bond, you know, you literally got to the point where you could issue debt for zero. You had a junk bond index of four. Then it doubled. You had the Fed funds rate go from 10 basis points, you know, or nothing to the one years of 470. So there have been gyrations in the corporate debt markets, gyrations in the equity markets, gyrations in the Bitcoin market. And we're not a one trick pony. Sometimes it makes sense to use cash flow. Sometimes it makes sense to use secured debt, sometimes unsecured debt. We did deleverage a billion with equity. Our shareholders like the idea, right? And we did put out the other $500 million shelf registration. And we did talk to our shareholders before we did it. And we said, how do you view this? And they said, we think it's a great idea. We think you should always have a shelf registration out, right? And, and the, re the reason that our shareholders are supportive is because we have been consistent and transparent with them. And we are, we are very clear on how we see it, right? Like if, if we can sell equity in order to con uh, convert to Bitcoin at a premium, we're equitizing the premium or we're monetizing the premium to the benefit of the shareholders. But, uh, you know, if, if they believe the management team is going to act responsibly and in a creative fashion, they support what you're doing. And if we did silly, stupid things that are dilutive to the shareholders, right, then they won't be so supportive. And in this particular case, uh, we actually evaluate all the markets all the time and we consider what are our opportunities and we're always balancing, you know, dilution to the shareholders, accretion to the shareholders versus deleveraging versus leveraging. And there's a different answer every quarter and sometimes every week uh, based on the way this market moves. Sounds like a lot more stress than running a YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks, thanks so much, Michael, for being a good sport. That was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it a lot. I'm sure Doomberg enjoyed it as well. We had uh, almost, I think, 4,000 people on the, the live stream at, at uh, its highest point. So I think uh, the, the community really enjoyed it and the people that are able to watch this on YouTube We'll get a kick out of it as well. So uh, appreciate it. And guys, enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, good luck, Michael. Num May number go up. And uh, George, appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Thanks, guys. I enjoyed it too. I'll see you in the Twitter sphere. <laughs>